everybody happy new year to 2020 you're listening to the drunken ux podcast i am your host michael feenan unfortunately this morning we can't kick off the year with aaron he is off doing all of his holiday shenanigans but that's okay because we wanted to make sure that we rang in the new year right this week this is episode technically 53 or season 3 episode 1 however you feel like counting we're going to be talking this evening about accessible CSS and, and techniques and tools and, and ways to look at that. And we have brought in a special guest for you, Mr. Christopher Schmidt from over at Nobility. Christopher, thank you. So you prefer Christopher or Chris? Is that? Uh, both are fine. Both are fine. Well, thanks for having me. So, yeah. I always have folks that are like, is it Mike or Michael? And I'm like, well, my name is Michael, so we'll go that route. <laughs> so. I, I will say I do prefer Christopher when it's like written down on um you know just written down just in general but chris or christopher i will answer too i, I figure I've, I've answered to much worse in my life so <laughs> go with whatever people want to call me folks if you are enjoying the drunken ux podcast be sure to go by our sponsors over at newcloud.com slash drunken ux you can go check them out for any kind of interactive mapping needs design they've got an interactive back end that you can build your own maps in uh, whatever you need, go check them out at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. If you want to find us, as always, you can go by twitter.com or facebook.com slash drunkenux or on Instagram at drunkenuxpodcast. If you want to jump in a uh, chat with us, we've always got our Slack up and running. You can go to drunkenux.com slash Slack and you can hit us up there and uh, get uh, an invite into that space. And outside of that, I am drinking this evening a... Very nice uh, Springbank tin. This is a new one from my shelf. I promised I'd be bringing some new stuff on the show. So I'm doing a Campbelltown scotch. Uh, I think there's only about three distillers in Campbelltown, and Springbank's uh, probably the biggest one. It's got kind of an earthy, smoky flavor. Some kind of a, a dried raisiny, uh, like almost like a smoked raisin kind of flavor that's nice. Um before we jump into tonight's topic, I wanted to hit real quick on a piece of news that just came across my newsfeed literally right before we started recording this. If you are a WordPress developer, you have probably come across pods at some point if you've done any kind of work with custom post types. Uh, I've used pods on probably four or five different projects. It's just a good way to bootstrap setting up uh, any kind of custom post type interface that you're looking to. Also, it uh, really can help with front-end content submission if you're not wanting to write your own forms and time to the REST API or something like that. They have tools that help with all that. Very good plugin. Been around for years and has really evolved over the years. And we'll have a link to this article in the show notes. The big piece of news, though, one of their main sponsors for the last few years has been Automatic. And Automatic has decided that they are going to start turning their support more towards Gutenberg-related projects. As a consequence, Pods is losing about 90% of its funding. A, that sucks. B, they don't say like how much that is. I don't know if that's a lot of money or maybe only a little bit of money. I hope it's not a huge amount um, because I know that's detrimental to them keeping up with their update cycle and support and all of that. But I just wanted to give them a shout-out because if you go uh, go to our show notes, uh, they've got a site. I believe it's friends.pods.io. They're looking for about 160 more people to just be like a supporter of, of the project. 
um, to help retain some of that funding. And you can pledge $5 a month or 10 bucks once, or you can be a, a higher, if you work at a company that wants to sponsor something like that, they've of course got higher level sponsorships. Just wanted to put some attention on that. Uh, it's a great project, a great tool. The folks that run it uh, have really worked their butts off on it. So uh, go give it a look and, and throw some support their way. This week we have Christopher Schmidt in. I mentioned he is from Nobility. He is the accessibility and training specialist over there, uh, formerly of Environments for Humans, where they did online conferences. He also has done on-site organization for things like the Artifact Conference. Uh, if you've been to CSS Dev Conference, you may also know him from about 352 books he's written, among <laughs> which are things like the HTML5 and CSS cookbooks. Uh, I think the first thing I ever read of yours was the Wasp Interact, the big, giant uh, uh, training manual, basically, oh, yeah. for how to get into CSS and JavaScript and all of that. Uh, yeah. What was that, about 2010? Yeah, 11, about 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, 9 years ago, 10 years ago. That was a great book, yeah. I, I like that book, yeah. I, I remember looking back at Wasp Interact. I'm on a uh, web and technology advisory committee for our local high school, and that was... When I joined that a few years ago, that was one of the things I had brought up to them was exactly what you were saying. Here's a living kind of learning material that you can bring into a classroom. You don't have to worry about always going out and finding new books and new material. This is kind of a source for you. So yeah. that was part of my foray into that space. But great material. It's still, I mean, honestly, good material if you're looking for, you know, a really comprehensive book, even though. Maybe a little out of date. It's a little out of date. Point, yeah, but... the publisher really wanted us to do an update one, like after it was published. But it, it was just like a I forgot who who else was in it, who else uh, co-authored it. But it was like a rock star. Yeah, it was. There was a list. Yeah, it was like Chris Mills. I know was in there. I think Glenda Sims was in there, and then Leslie Inman uh, as well. So she was she was on it. So yeah, it was really just like a a great great team. Yeah, I was really fortunate to be part of that. This week, accessible CSS is our topic. I want to. Start with this great quote. Um, this comes out of a UX movement article, and I hate this quote. Um, it's from the Aesthetic Accessibility Paradox, um, and it says, In general, the more accessible an interface is, the less aesthetic appeal it will have. Mm. We've used the phrase on this show, and, and it's always used out in the wild quite frequently, this idea that um, accessibility is usability. If you design really good, mm -hmm. accessible sites, they are inherently usable. But we don't talk about the aesthetic a lot. Mm. And I think that's one area where this article actually does a good job in that the emphasis of the article is really about, like, how do you strike that balance between some, making something incredibly accessible but also really pretty to look at? Because there are lots of things that are pretty to look at that simply aren't accessible, especially when it comes to, you know, contrast and grays and things like that. Because everybody wants to have things subtle and, and drowned out in some of these things. So I wanted, I thought this was kind of a good way to outline some of this and get started, but what would be like your mantra in that area? Like what is CSS's role in accessibility for you? Well, I mean, it's like, it's a tool, right? It's, you know, and depends on how you use it, right? If you don't know what you're doing, 
you could just build an accessible website with everything that you're, you're working on. So it's just, um, I think we, I was, I'm on the uh, CSS working group, but they had a discussion recently about the new property about, uh, the link border, uh, that you can actually stylize it now. Right. Yeah. I saw that in, in terms of that. And so there was a discussion going on about the accessibility of it all because you know how important, uh, having links, uh, with underline. And they were like, well, if we, if we do this, the people, designers could do something really bad with it. And I was like, have you seen the web for the last 20 years? I mean, like people <laughs> can do amazingly awful things with CSS. And this is from a guy who just loves CSS. I've written uh, so many books about CSS. And um, so I just, I just feel like it's a tool, you know, for learning. That's great. But if you don't know what you're doing, it just go, you know, it might just blow up in your face. You know, I think that article talks about contrast, right? And so, you know, if you don't apply enough contrast through CSS, you know, color units, then, you know, you're, you don't have an accessible website. It, does, it could look pretty or whatever, but it doesn't, might not be uh, usable or might not be accessible. And so, and actually, one of the things we did at work uh, here at Nobility was um, we had a client uh, said like, hey, well, skip links look really boring uh, and they really just mess up my interface. And so one of the things I did was I put together a blog post with you know, the team member. Uh, team members help of websites that we thought had really great looking uh, skip links. And so if you, if you go to our blog post, you can see it. But, uh, and so, you know, we, we showcase like um, Starbucks is a really good skip links. Uh, Chase bank has, has a good one. And so, um, and so it was just a really great way of just showing how CSS can be used to, to display uh, without it, you know, skip links being overbearing onto to a website. After take a look at a few of those. We actually just redid our skip links at work because I was in playing with them and I, uh, I, forget, I was doing something completely unrelated, but I noticed I was, uh, as I was tabbing through, I was working on keyboard controls for an element. And I noticed when I was tabbing, I was getting no visual pop-up of these. And we'll talk about some of this here in a little bit about focus yeah. and hover. Uh, but I was getting nothing as I was keyboard controlling, and so that triggered me into doing some rework on the way our skip links work and everything so that you could see them and they would show up, you know, in places that made sense. So uh, that'll, I, yeah, I'll have to take a look at some of these and see how I fit into the mix because uh, a designer I am not, <laughs> but I can make the things work. There, you You made a comment there about, you know, how much control do you want to give a designer basically over something that people rely on for things like accessibility. I had a conversation earlier this week about a com wholly and completely unrelated topic, but in a similar vein, the counterpoint that was made to me, and I've, I've got to read this quote out of this tweet, said uh, we had a client describe this as we gave them Legos and they made a butt plug. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and it's that idea of, you know, how you can create flexibility and, and have all this oh. control, but you also have to have a bit of trust in how people are going to put it together, oh. you know, and great. We've got all these CSS properties and my brain immediately goes to things like a underline and how right. we use underline and, and border and all of that to control uh, the way links right. are underlined. Cause you can, you can take away a links underline completely with CSS with a couple, uh, with a couple right. properties and it's like pulling hair to get people to understand no, that's that is a, an incredibly important visual cue to some right. people. And, yeah, and some people just have you know they they decided to go in weird design directions. Like there's a website that uh, 
uh, I reviewed, and they decided to take off link colors. And so the link color matched the text co- copy, and yeah. they got rid of the underlying links. So I, you didn't know what was a link <laughs> when you read it. So <laughs> um, and it's only if you happen to hover and, you know, and, and uh, using the mouse, it never worked with the key, uh, keyboard navigation. And so I was just like, we're going to make a game show out of that. <laughs> Find yeah. the link. Uh, you know, and this this gets into maybe a deeper philosophical discussion that uh, maybe is better yeah. for another time. But uh, I, I think there's a, an important philosophical discussion to have there at the graphic design mm-hmm. level. You know, when we talk about web development and, and coding and, and that real raw sort of I'm going to build a website we're at least trying to get a lot better about talking about accessibility and, and working that into your workflow and working that into your code. But I'm not convinced that in the graphic design mm-hmm. world, especially because most people who study web design in the graphical sense, you know, they still end up taking a lot of classes in various, you know, art direction yeah. and art design and concepting and things. And they do product design yeah. and a lot of these supplemental kind of categories that all come back to making mm-hmm. graphics. I'm just not sure that we've gotten that message into that space as well, because the discipline tends to cross over so many different areas. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it's, there's so many things to learn with web design and like, I see this a lot with boot camps where like they just, um, they, they give you like a day of HTML and maybe a day or two of CSS. And then it's like, rest of the time, it's JavaScript, you know? And so if in, in accessibility is even like touched because they don't have the time to work on accessibility into their, their flow. And then, you know, as someone who was a student, you know, to college as a photograph design, we were all just trying to figure out how web design worked, period. And then if, but right. also for me as a student, I was just trying to figure out how graphic design worked, right? And that was, the hard part was like, I was trying to like, I got these lessons, you know, from color theory to layout to composition, uh, you know, and then if you throw on like trying to figure out accessibility, like what, whoa, where does that come from? You're like, you know, and as a graphic designer, I meant I, like, I really went there for print and then halfway through, I went there for web design. <laughs> and so that was kind of, right. kind of a yeah. weird thing, but, but yeah, it's so there's just so many disciplines that you don't have to deal with when you're dealing with print as you have to deal with web design. So there's so many more things that you have to, you have to be concerned about. And so that, that's one of the things I love about web design. It's also one of the things I just give me so, gives me so much headaches because there's like so many more things to, to contemplate and, and, uh, and answer. We're kind of in that same age group where we learned to build websites when the only way to do that was to mm. teach yourself. And accessibility just like as a function of web design, it just wasn't a discipline yet. As we got into the early 2000s and and the late two th- or the the late part of the early mm-hmm. 2000 decade, 06, 07, in that area, that's where you really started seeing that emphasis on, hey, this is a thing. And um, I don't WeCag 1.0. Actually, I think it came out like around 99 or something like that. But you know, this emphasis on things like 508 mm-hmm. compliance uh, in Kansas, we have policy 1210. Those things really didn't start picking up until a lot of folks like you and I had already been doing this for a while and we had to kind of backtrack and relearn mm-hmm. and we, we, we bear some responsibility for being that voice a little bit to make sure that, Hey, just because like, even we learned it a different way. It's, we understand this value and we need other people to understand that value. And I think 
let me see if this is a fair way for me to say this, that I feel like if you're going to get into design and you're going to get into layout and things like that, approaching accessibility from the standpoint of your CSS and your design has to start with good semantic HTML and good clean JavaScript. Is that a fair thing for me to say? Yeah, I mean, you really want your CSS to be really clean, but I think really it helps everything going forward if you're, is your HTML as semantic as possible. Um, my, well, my, my Jeff Bean stories, I'm not sure you remember who Jeff Bean was or is, he's, he's still alive. But he, I first met him back in the days when he worked at uh, Wired Magazine, or when it was online property and it was a magazine in San Francisco. But then I met him again uh, when I went to South by Southwest and there was an accessibility panel. And so he was on there and his quote was that he doesn't have to worry about accessibility because he uses uh, semantic HTML right. in, in his websites. And so in that, what people don't realize is that he also says like, it feels like he gets him 75% of the way there was also what he said. And I think that's, you know, still very true. Um, Cause it's just a lot of things that um, just so people know, like my day job, I usually, I audit websites for accessibility um, and so for errors. And so a lot of the issues I find is a good portion of them are just really bad HTML. Yeah. And people just seem to forget what links are and they use JavaScript to make things clickable because they can in JavaScript. You know, like you know, we, I've seen like uh, table data cells become clickable, spans are clickable, divs are clickable. And when you come in with a screen reader, you know, that's just not going to work because the screen reader isn't for a browser. It's for the whole entire screen. Right. So it has to like know what's, you know, what's what the computer's going to give it. And if when it comes to like a table cell, it might it might skip that entirely. Like in terms of like, well, this is just a table cell. I'll just read the contents and move on. Yeah. And not, not give it. And so. But uh, I think if you're into accessibility, I think the greatest gift if you're learning or starting out with is whatever computer you're on, whether you're Windows or, or Mac, just find out the native or easy solution to get a screen reader going and for seeing how well that it, and you quickly realize that it's a linear viewing experience where with your eyes, you can just jump all over the place on a web page. But when you're listening to content come in through almost like, you know, I guess sound someone just reading uh, a book to you, it just, you just can't, can't jump around and, and do all that stuff, do all stuff like that. So, yeah. I uh, recently uh, started using the read aloud plugin in mm-hmm. Chrome, yeah. which, because for all of the research I do for these episodes and, and things like that, I've gotten to where it's a lot easier for me to sometimes to throw an article into that mm-hmm. and let it read it to me. And yeah. that actually has had a surprising impact on how I view uh, like linearized content and things like that for that reason that we've discussed on here before. Like when you sit down, if you can ever, if you ever have the chance to sit down with a blind user yeah. and listen to the way they consume the web and the way they listen to a screen reader, yeah. it, it is mind blowing how quickly they can hear that. Mm-hmm. But when you get into some of these things that aren't marked up, right, the way it reads them can get very unpleasant to say right. the least. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's amazing because like, at Nobility, we actually have a one of the features, uh, one of the services that we provide, provide is a uh, uh, usability test with people with disabilities. And so, um, and so it's, and um, at South by Southwest, we had a booth where we had people uh, with people with disabilities that, like, you know, if you want to come to our, our booth and have a website, if you want to 
and people came up saying, do you want your website that you work for your company or whatever? Go through your website to see how accessible it is. Uh, it was just for those people who came and, and did that and signed up for it. It was just a mind blowing experience that they like, oh, my gosh, I've never I never heard someone use a screen reader on my website. before. <laughs> so. And when we talk about semantic HTML, it's there's I, I like to give a good example of that because we've got. The the standard thing, when we use things like divs and spans a lot, those are non-semantic elements. They're just containers. Mm -hmm. They can hold anything. They can be virtually any shape or size. Uh, they can be layout-related, content-related. When we uh, HTML5 really stepped up our ability to have semantics, uh, the classic one I like to talk about is nav. You have an element now called nav that you can use to uh, wrap set pieces of navigation on your site. So we're talking... You know, top menus, bottom footer elements, things like that can be wrapped in that element so that a browser knows that's navigation inside of that. The other thing that using the proper elements in the proper places does is you don't have to put things like, and we've mentioned this before and, and uh, have talked about how this applies to things like ARIA roles. ARIA roles let you define elements as being certain things for a screen reader. Things like the nav element it's default ARIA role is navigation. You don't have to go through and put in the extra role when you use the right semantic elements on some of those things. So that using that correct markup, using you know the the date time element, using things like article and main and all of that to wrap uh, wrap your your content on your page. Those things all help explain to a screen reader what your DOM looks like, so it knows how to flow through it. And that, that's incredibly helpful. And it sets up you for then how you're going to write all the CSS and know where it's going to impact things and what it's going to impact. Yeah. And on top of that, there's also some great things. I mean, like there's like the main and um, header and footer, which I think footer is kind of like ubiquitous now. Like everyone uses footer, but some people forget about header. And, and those are what are called like landmarks. And so that, that allows people um, with, you know, assistive technologies to, quickly navigate to different sections of the website. But also I think the really important stuff with semantic HTML is using your headings correctly. Because um, right. uh, um, the people at WebAIM, which is a, a, another accessibility specialist, they do an annual survey with people who use assistive technology. And, and it, like the last two years, at least, over 60% of people who use assistive technologies, like a, a JAWS reader, they use headings to navigate a websites to figure out what's important and uh, and and how to go through everything. So if you want an H1, make sure you use one H1 and use if you can. So uh, if, hopefully you can. But uh, then H2 and H3 and H4 in order, and make sure you don't jump around from like using H2 then H H6s or whatever in order. So so yeah. When like I work at an organization where we've got distributed authorship. Yeah. And when it comes to content creation and uh, QA on code is one thing. QA on content is something where I think we a lot of organizations have a lot of work to do. And you run into folks who inevitably mm -hmm. want to use an H1 inside of something because it's bigger. Yeah. <laughs> even though it's absolutely not an H1 or you know, even deeper than that two, three, four. You know, if you're because a lot of the times those headers, we do use size to convey importance of right. the headers. Of course, yeah. And some people are just like, well, it's not big enough in that space, so I'm going to make it an H2 instead of an H4 like it should be. Right, yeah. Um, because they don't understand, they have no... They don't abstract, yeah, they don't abstract the, 
semantics from the visual, right? So right, because these are, you know, they may be a, a secretary in an office or a salesman or something like that. Like they, they shouldn't have to know that. And, and ideally, your tools would be good enough to prevent them from doing it. But the reality is very different. Most of us have CMSs or whatever that just don't have that level of granularity and, and control. Well, like, well, content is tough. Like, how do you how do you handle content where where you are? Uh, not well. <laughs> uh, we we do try to abstract as many of the structured fields out as we can. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to things like headings and and stuff like that, where we know they're in use, we absolutely try to make those a field that you fill out right. rather than part of like body content. Right. But you know, if it's a blog post, for instance, you've got a WYSIWYG in there, and the only thing we we can do, we aren't right now, but. The only thing we could do is write an extra plugin that would take out some of the tiny MCE options so that you can't mm. pick. Like the H1 is going to be the blog post. Yeah. Um, that's the, the post title. So reasonably, you shouldn't be able to pick an H1 from, from the dropdown. But that also would require us to do a bunch of extra work on the plugin for the WYSIWYG on a blog post, but maybe not another item. And... Well, uh, just to show you how old I am, people can look this up, but I went to a book launch with uh, David Siegel. He's at the Secrets of Successful Websites. I knew that there was content that was going to be an issue because he asked a question, and the whole book was about managing projects back in the day. You know, his question, it was like, how many people have issues with content? And the whole room raised their hand, and I've never seen content not be an issue for for organizations yeah. uh, in that. Uh, that was a uh, early lesson for me like oh content's gonna be, be a tough one and it's 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 true like wherever i go it's just you know or wherever i do i just you know people it's a really interesting thing to do to, to, to think but it's because content qa isn't the same as editorial review mm -hmm. so to speak and there's a, there's a just a technical gap there that most organizations i just don't think are big enough quite frankly to pay one person full time to be, you know, a content QA person. Yeah. Uh, which is unfortunate, but I think is ultimately the reality of that. And if you're anywhere that has a lot of content, you know, I come from this university background where, you know, our site was 80,000 pages and that's a small university site. And we've got dozens of people putting out new pages and changing things daily in those situations. It would have been my full time job just to, have the the review pipeline set up to make sure all that's okay mm. and i couldn't do that and there was certainly no money in the budget to hire somebody and i think that's just where a lot of people fall and mm. um unfortunately the users bear the consequences of that yeah. which is really the sucky part about it um, for developers most of them the the first run-in you really have i think with where CSS and accessibility intersect. And this is true, you know, a, a lot of folks will will hit this when they start using something like Foundation or Bootstrap. Right. Um, that's one of the very first kind of uh, examples where these pop up because they're baked in, and that's with things like visibility classes. Foundation comes with this class that's called show-4-sr, show for screen reader. And... What it does is let you make text, for instance, your skip to content type of link that you would put at the very top of your page. The reason you would put a skip to content link at the top of your page is so that your user doesn't have to listen through, you know, 
60 links of header navigation. You know, you got your main nav and sub nav and all of that. Mm-hmm. You don't want them to listen to that every time. So you give them a skip link. Right. Um, I mean, I, 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 I tell people like, you know, like you want people to go through your website, right? Like, yeah. Like, you know, let's say you really want people to like, you know, people really usually bounce out of a website after viewing one page, you know, if it's like a Google search or whatever like that, like it, but you want them to go through your whole website, right? Like, yeah, but you don't want people to listen to the header six, 18 times, you know, trying to find the right content on your website, you know? So, so the importance of, of skip to links is just to make sure that you don't have to hear the header over and over and over again. So that's very, very key for that. But the thing is also that skip to content is also, it's part of um, uh, the WCAG is to, to bypass, it's called bypass, bypass blocks. But I've also found it's also important to bypass just loads of content <laughs> that right. the person yeah. just doesn't want to hear. And um, we've, um, I've, we've used this and in, in with clients and like, not use it with clients, but just really just tell clients like they're really, uh, if they're going to use a Twitter embed or a Facebook embed w- widget, which are not accessible, but those things just go on and on and on forever. And they, they just, you know, they're, they're so one way is just do a, a skip, you know, skip this Twitter link or this Twitter embed and some of that too. Or if you just have a big table, you want people just to bypass it. Too. That's we've got some code in our CMS that when a page renders out and our blocks render out, mm-hmm. it automatically generates a unique ID mm-hmm. on each block. Nice, and each one gets a skip this block link as well. Oh, nice. So if you are trying to tab through one of our pages, it's got because we've got product pages, you know, that'll have panels of features mm-hmm. and testimonials and all. You can quickly tab through those using those links as well, so that same thing to, to bypass those blocks that the unique thing and why like this is sort of one of those first areas that people hit is they make a common mistake when you get started with this and that's thinking that oh well this is content that isn't meant for a normal user it's a you know sort of a programmatically consumed element so to speak so i'll just make it display none or, or visibility hidden mm-hmm. and there's a an article, uh, Accessibility for Beginners with HTML and CSS, uh, that we'll have linked from uh, Maria Boldriva, 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 sorry, <laughs> uh, that, uh, that mentions this. But when you get into visibility classes, if you ever take the time and look at the markup that goes into some, and we'll, again, these, there will be plenty of links in the show notes for some of these. When you look at the way Foundation does a an accessible hidden link, they do things like position it absolutely, move it off screen, make it height 1-1, one, one, mm-hmm. uh, change its Z-index. If you make it display none or if you make it visibility hidden, screen readers now, there was a time probably 10, 15 years ago where that worked. Now screen readers honor that. Mm-hmm. And so if it's, not displayed or if it's been told to be hidden the screen reader will skip right past it as well and so the user can't get it so we come up with these ways of changing the way they're viewed and and negative 9999 pixels to the right we move them totally off screen so that they exist out there in the ether and when a screen reader hits it to it it's still visible then because it does still exist in space, so to speak. Generally, one of the first places you'll run into, though, where CSS factors, I think, fairly heavily into that because we're 
concerned with screen readers. We're concerned with keyboard controls yeah. and how those interact with elements. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I definitely would tell people to shy away from Display None. And if you're using Display None to hide content, I would just like, hey, we'll just get rid of the content off the page altogether because you're forcing people to download it. And if it's text, I'm not sure the image is going to download, but um, but in the in the background, but uh, uh, yeah, just won't do that. But the, but there's but if you want to hide things but make it accessible for screen readers, there's you know there's CSS rule set for you know for screen reader only that will hide it visually, but screen readers will still uh, be able to pick it up. So yeah, so, so let's use that to kind of get into some of these things that let's talk about where CSS fits in specifically in terms of how it impacts accessibility, either for good or bad, um, for that matter, because there are certainly things you can do with CSS that would hurt accessibility. Uh, one of the big ones comes uh, from WCAG 1412, mm -hmm. and that's dealing with text behavior. Now, what it outlines is these ratios, so uh, it deals with line height. Line height should be one and a half times the font size. Mm -hmm. Spacing should be uh, twice the font size between paragraphs. Letter spacing is 0.12. Word spacing is 0.16. And so you can use those ratios if you're using M's or REM's uh, as your base for your element sizing. You can make sure you can use CSS to control those as at least a minimum spec so that no matter where your stuff is, any P tag always has margin bottom that's 2 REM, for instance. Uh, and and use that as a means of ensuring that you're passing that particular checkpoint. A lot of this comes back to reading specs, and that sucks, <laughs> but you have to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, read read the documentation, and nobody does that, but that's that's where the answers right. are, at least for a lot of this. I think those are good recommendations. Like, line height's really good. Um, I was reading a, a, a blog yesterday, yesterday and, and there was no line height whatsoever, and my eyes were just burning just trying to, <laughs> trying to read the paragraph. <laughs> You know, I used to pride myself on the fact that I could read the teeniest, tiniest. I remember building models yeah. and taking these decals that had tiny print. I could read them all. Man, I'm going to be 38 next <laughs> month, and I can still do it. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but I don't like yeah. it. And I that's why I'm like, my baseline is 16, and yeah. I think my personal blog is like 18. Yeah. Because it, it is, it's just nicer to read when you have good, big, flowing font. And it's not like it takes you longer to read right. it because of it. Our season finale for season two, we were reviewing uh, the 10 UX commandments. And one of those commandments was, you are not the user. Great. Michael, 26-year-old Michael, had great eyesight and could handle that eight-point aerial font, uh, whatever. But that doesn't mean all of my users are that age and have that eyesight right. and i say now that i'm getting older i'm i wear glasses when i use my computer because it reduces my eye strain we are all temporarily abled to a degree and even something like just reading even though i can read i'm not blind by any stretch of the imagination i certainly appreciate the attention to detail when folks do make an effort to make something easy that's Medium, I think, did a really good job with that. Right, and I, I want to go back to that point, like where you said, like you were, yeah. You know, I think people realize that um, you know they can be temporarily disabled, right? They they could have like uh, they could break their arm, and uh, not that I'm not yep. wishing that, 
but uh, that you know they could be hard for them to use a keyboard and then have to rely on a mouse. And then if they, you know, how hard is you know does autocomplete work correctly on like a Mac? And does um, you know their eyesight goes away for a while if they have like they get their uh, with a LASIK surgery or whatever? Uh, so they're you know they're, so they're blind for a day or two or whatever like that. So how can they use their website? You know if they if they can't you know everyone's is could be temporarily disabled at some point and then can you actually use your own website at that point in time? And yeah. I think for any website, you know, there's, there's nothing better than getting your stakeholders to watch a UX test in person. Cause then they actually see, you know, how people are using your website. Uh, exactly. And so I think that's like the best thing to go do it. So. But. One of the big ones I harp on is focusing on the pseudo elements, hover and focus. Mm-hmm. This is one of those areas, and this goes back to the whole, you know, one of your first experiences with CSS accessibility might be this whole visibility thing. Where hover and focus come into play is back to keyboard control particularly. Mm-hmm. When you are tabbing through, if you've got that skip to navigation, if I'm using a keyboard control, this because we, we talk about hiding things for screen right. readers, but... Somebody using keyboard controls isn't necessarily blind. They're motor impaired. And so they see your screen fine. And if you're tabbing through a website and trying to use that keyboard or if you use a, you're using even eye control uh, and eye monitoring, you need a way to do the same things because they need to skip content as well because they don't necessarily have the dexterity to use a mouse or a scroll wheel. When they focus on that skip to content leak, you need to see that in the page somewhere so that they know that's where they mm-hmm. are. One of the traps, and I had mentioned when I was reworking ours, I, I now this whole conversation has brought me to where that happened. It was in our navigation. Mm-hmm. When you tabbed through our site and tabbed into our main nav, you vanished. You were still tabbing the main oh, yeah, nav, yeah. but the dropdowns didn't right. open. And it, it captured that tabbing for an amount of time that was completely unknown to the user. And that's not fair to them at all uh, as a consequence. So you have to use hover, you have to use, but bind that focus as well, because focus is sort of that follow along so that you can open that up and show the same things and, and show those elements. And we forget about those, I think, far too often. Right. I mean, I remember like, you know, I think people don't forget using the mouse hover and the interactions with the mouse. And so they actually like integrate, make sure they have a hover effect when they, they go over links and stuff like that too, but they forget the focus part of it. And, um, and so when you, I think what happened maybe with yours is like when you, when you did your tab navigation, there was no CSS rules, you know, that, that fired when you went through the, the keyboard. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they just they weren't there. there. And then sometimes um, the earliest versions of Bootstrap had uh, outline. It's the CSS property outline equal to none or zero. And so what that happened is that that visual indicator, uh, we call it the visual focus ring, is gone, right? And so as you're trying to tab through a site and outline is equals zero or none or whatever, people who are using who rely on keyboard navigation can't see where their, you know, where their focus is on the web page. And so that, you know, I, we see that a lot with, with, with clients is that the outline just gets sucked away and you have no idea where you are. 
And the quick fix is what I usually tell them is that just to uh, um, apply a descent, like a, a was it? I forget. My brain goes. Uh, a grouping uh, selector basically just combine your hover with your focus to go to the same CSS rules as as the hover. And usually that's all you need yeah. because usually there's enough contrast with your focus because people or with your hover because people they they like the hover right they love their mouse click about it. Uh, but sometimes they don't, you know, sometimes it's not that great and you need to create a focus style that's high contrast. And so you need to make sure, make sure there's enough of a contrast so that when people go through the site, they can see it. And so, um, and normally if you don't do outline zero none or outline equals not zero, the browser will just display its own native focus, visual focus ring. I'm a big fan of use outline. Um, the nice thing about outline is that it doesn't disrupt the flow of the content the way border yes. can. Um, and when you're using border, depending on your box sizing, at, you know, adding a hover border or a focus border might move content around, whereas outline doesn't yeah, do I think that. It's, it's more like a uh, box shadow, where like, if you apply a box shadow, it won't move things around. So. Yeah. I'm, uh, I generally encourage people to not like try to change the outline color or anything, if only because... Since outline is, like you said, it's a function of the browser. It's very similar to the way I think about um, uh, form mm-hmm. validation. Uh, when you put, like, required on a field, the the browser itself will uh, try to validate that if you're using a date field or a num field. The thing is, your user is used to their browser, mm-hmm. and more sites than not are probably not customizing it. And so we're back to Jacob's Law of UX, where... Most people don't use your site. You know, they are using all of the other sites more than yours. And so the more you can let the browser behave the way they are used to the browser behaving makes it more likely that they will understand the behavior on your site. At least that's that's my opinion on it. But you you can work with that, though, and you can customize the outline a little bit. But you use it. Definitely yeah. use it. Um, what's your take on color palettes? This is one that... And if you if anybody uses things like Slack and Discord and all of these apps of 2019 was like the year of dark mode. <laughs> hey, we have dark mode now. Websites and for a long time, some of them offered like you can you know you can have your uh, uh, tranquility green <laughs> theme or whatever. Like you could pick your own color right. themes back in the yeah. day. But using some kind of either site setting or a drop down or something in terms of setting in particular either color palettes for uh color blindness enabling color schemes that are friendly for colorblind people or uh for contrast people who have uh needs for high contrast and high visibility uh what's your take on that wikag has a handful of rules about color and um I actually wrote an article for 24 accessibility, which is quite like an advent calendar for accessibility every December. And so uh, mine was about color theory and contrast ratios. And so contrast ratios, if no one knows, is basically taking of the background color with the relative luminance of the foreground color and just doing a ratio. Like basically just, you know, what's, what's the ratio between this color to this color? And so in that way, you can take any color and basically figure out a ratio from it so wikag has um, some you know some rules about that and saying like um, you you want to make sure your link colors are have this level of color contrast 
and not below it. You want to go above it just so people can see uh, that there's a link and they can read the text and stuff like that too. So, and then there's also going to be a triple A level of, of contrast where it's just like um, where instead of 4.5 ratio, it's going to be even higher if you want to, if you want to meet the triple A level of, of compliance. And so that's uh, that's going to be kind of interesting. Um, and then there, there's also a non-contrast, non-text contrast uh, with a, a success criteria, which is 1.411, which talks about um, buttons and icons and making sure that um, if there's something that's important, if I hope we get this right, if there's for, for user, user interface components and graphic objects like buttons and icons, you need to provide enough contrast so people know the edges, if you will, of when an item or button ends. And so... Um, so a lot of times, yeah. you know, back in the day, sometimes you get like uh, kind of artsy or avant-garde sites where the search button was just a text. It looked like text because they took the border around and they made it invisible, yeah. so you didn't know it was a button. And so, it was, or the the yeah, the sort of faded out magnifying yeah. glass in the back right. of the bar. So that's a, that's a kind of a big no-no. So that's where color comes into play for a lot of things like that. So that I think the easy way, you know, when you think about this is. A, SAS is your friend. There are a ton of mix-ins and functions that can help you in terms of like making sure that you have colors that are the right, right. contrast. You can make a style sheet that's like, you know, you've got main.css and then main-highcontrast.css. And a little piece of JavaScript can sit in the corner, put a link in the corner of your side, a button in the corner of your site that says switch to high right. contrast. And all it has to do is add a body class. And then it'll automatically swap out your color scheme for any given elements that need to be affected by that. And it's pretty painless from an approach standpoint. Right. I mean, there, um, there's an article on CSS Tricks. I forgot who wrote it. Um, I want to say it's Sarah Snowden, but I could be totally wrong. And she just went through a SAS, uh, how to automatically make sure there's enough. I think it was Sarah, I could be wrong, about using SAS to automatically give enough contrast uh, if background colors change or not. So like if you have a button and button text and it changes color, the text on the button will always be have enough contrast. So you don't even need JavaScript to make it work, you know, so. Yeah, because there's, we've got access to all these calc functions now. Right, exactly. And so with the right calc function, if you're using like HSL or something as your color setting for an element, right. theoretically, you could easily uh, sort that out right. uh, dynamically. That. To, if I can find that, I'll, I'll throw it in the show notes. That'll be a good one. One other area where you can use CSS to kind of block out some of the old way of thinking is using CSS to apply background images or, you know, after images, things like that, that are purely decorative. They're just there for the aesthetic quality. And this, you know, the way we open this up, talking about the way accessibility and, and, and usability and aesthetics can kind of be... Uh, antagonistic of each other but you can use css to answer some of those needs so that you don't have to have images without alt tags mm -hmm. that was always the the common argument well should i just put a, a dot in my alt tag <laughs> or a space can i leave it blank oh man because there I, you know there was the method of just saying well yeah if it's for decoration you don't need an alt tag mm -hmm. but with css you don't have to worry about that question at all just make it part of decorative layout of things. My my favorite part of this, and this is something we've referred to many times on the show, is the old CSS Zen Garden, right. which really demonstrated that 
that pure and beautiful separation of presentation and layout and utilizing all of these, you know, whether it's pseudo selectors after before using uh, CSS background images and and things like that, uh, web fonts, any number of different things, you can make this beautiful design out of something that's marked up exactly the same as a million other examples. And that's one, just one way to get around some of those things where, well, we're going to put, you know, these images over here, use them however we're going to use them, mark them up through CSS, use normal semantic HTML then behind that, and you don't have to worry about those images. Because a lot of screen readers, one of the things uh, that I've ran into, I think, I think Read Aloud does it. If it runs into an image without an alt text, it'll just read the image path. Yeah, it would just read the file name, right? Of the image. Right, right. which, so it doesn't actually absolve the problem in that situation. Right. So you can't always leave alt text right. blank without it uh, causing a problem. Yeah, if you use like a CMS with a CDN, sometimes you get these like weird letter number combinations, which mean absolutely nothing <laughs> to anyone. To yeah. Computer. yeah. Now, a couple areas of caution. First and foremost, and this kind of actually refers back to the CSS Zen Garden, order and positioning. Right. We use CSS all the time to move things around the page, make things look differently. But like we were saying earlier, when you get into a screen reader, a screen reader can only read one thing after another. It does what we call linearize the page. And that's something to really think about hard when you're using CSS to not go out of your way to move things out of the flow in a way that doesn't make sense. Uh, Manuel, uh, I don't know why I pick these articles and everybody has a name that I feel terrible. My last name is Feenan. It's spelled weird. I, I hope you all can appreciate that I understand. Uh, Manuel uh, Matuzovich, I'm going to go with that. Um, he's got an article called Writing CSS with Accessibility in Mind, and he's got a section in there that specifically talks about ordering and positioning of content with CSS. Um, but there's this huge importance that comes with making sure your content is in the order that you need it to be read. Mm-hmm. Um, this you, You've heard, Chris, about like the F pattern, the F pattern of websites. Yeah. Where we tend to read left to right and up to down in this way that our eyes create kind of an F shape on the page. And there's this debate that constantly goes that says, you know, is the F pattern still relevant in today's modern web? I argue it is from the concept of how we linearize a page when even we ourselves are reading it with our eyes. That that F pattern is kind of the way you can think about how a screen reader is going to take that page and line it up. Left to right, top to bottom. Right. I mean, if you have your page in a semantic order, then I'm going to like, assume that your screen reader is going to read it in a linear format. With, with the sequence is, is really important is that uh, for people who can see, but they have to use tab navigation, right? So they want to, so as they go through the page with tab navigation, which with that the focus screen goes from left to right and goes down the page in an, an order that makes sense visually that goes along with the page layout. And if it doesn't do that, um, then it might be an issue for some people with disabilities that they, they don't know, they, they'll lose track of the focus ring. They don't know where it's gone. Um, I see this, I've seen this a, a couple times where people put the back to top button 
um, visually, like in the code order, it's like a top of the page. It's like top of the document. But visually, they move it with CSS with position, you know, absolute to the bottom right corner. And so they're like, they're going to the page, they enter the page, and all of a sudden their focus ring goes to the bottom right <laughs> of the browser window. Yeah. And they're like totally lost as to like, what's going on? What happened? One of the things I, I know, like CSS grids are here, and I love the fact that they're here. <laughs> I love the fact that the CSS grids are here. Long overdue, yeah. Yeah. But, and like, and you know, this is before I got into accessibility um, a lot. I was like, oh, I can't wait because then I can present a page, but I can have a document source order be in a linear format that makes sense, but then I can, I am free as a designer to lay out the page in any way I want, right? I can just like go, I can place content in the footer up here and on the upper page. I go very avant-garde and do kind of, I had a really cool design mentor at college. And so, uh, so I could do all these really things that I could, I always wanted to do in print that I couldn't do on the web and, and move things around. Um, and then, you know, my kind of accessibility is like, oh, I can't do that if I want to make sure I have an accessible page because that it's something called the, you know, make sure I have a reading order. It's a success criteria 1.3.2 is that you want to make sure your reading order matches what's visually displayed on the page. And, and as you, you want to make sure it's logical intuitive to go through and, and order that. So like, so with CSS grids, you actually pull things out of the document order and lay things out in a really cool and different way. But the sucky part is uh, this is something that's really hard to convey over a podcast yeah. um, because you can go in when you define a CSS grid, you can l you're literally laying out the name of individual blocks yeah. uh, or can rather lay out the name of individual blocks and then assign content to those. So like you say, your last element could be the top left element visually. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so how that then flows for the accessible DOM is, uh, can be very problematic from a user flow standpoint. Um, one of the last areas I, and I'm going to hit on this just kind of briefly, um, because it gets into some hyper specific examples, I think, which is media specific style sheets where most people will be used to this is having like all and print. Those are, I think, the two really common ones. You have your normal style sheet that's just for whatever, and then you have your style sheet that's for print so that you can do things like take your header out and maybe you linearize your content or you make images full width. and You can do a million things. That's that When it prints, it prints in a way that's friendly to the page so you don't have sidebars and, and all of this. But there are also other media queries you can run that are outlined. There's a, a good... Uh, book called Web Accessibility, Web Standards, and Regulatory Compliance. Chapter nine was Chapter nine was written by a gentleman called Richard Ritter, called named Richard Ritter, um, and there'll be a link in the show notes to that. And he outlines all of these different media queries, and you can get into a, a media query specific for Braille, embossed Braille for uh, speech reading out uh, for TTY, which is like teletype machines. Uh, you will not run into these very often, but you certainly could run into them in areas where either you have governmental compliance. Um, I could imagine if you had a job with, say, the Social Security Administration, they may have needs for compliance with things like Braille and TTY. Uh, that's not out of the realm of possibility. And I say them mostly just to let people know that they exist. <laughs> 
Because I don't think, there, again, on a podcast, not a good way to convey Braille CSS to you, but uh, it is a thing, and it does exist. Uh, but you can also get in between the media queries we have for devices, um, feature queries, the at supports uh, functionality. Mm-hmm. You can get into things uh, like uh, you brought up earlier, Chris, when we were talking about uh, the prefers reduced motion. Which I totally love, by the way. I just totally love that. I think that's a great a uh, great thing to do uh, because there's going to be so many sites that are out there like for entertainment or, or, you know, like they have a video in, in their webpage that's embedded, um, set the autoplay and which is really terrible. We should not do that. Um, and also if <laughs> you have you. a carousel that's automatically playing, that could be uh, hard for people with disabilities or if you have an animation that kind of plays. So what I love is prefers reduced motion is that people, with disabilities can take that have taken control of their computer and have selected this as an option with you know with Mac you have an option with preferences you can set it say hey I prefer reduced motion and so when they go through a page um, and I think Chrome supports it now from Mac whatever and Safari does so if you go to a page and the CSS is written correctly or whatever instead of having the video play automatically you can just say hey it will just be a poster frame. And then they can actually play it if they want to, um, or just just give them an image, a still image, and they don't have to play anything. Or uh, with a carousel, make sure the carousel is on pause automatically, so it doesn't go um, play automatically. So, um, so it's just a really great feature where a person, uh, your user, has taken control of their computer, and you've done your homework and done your due diligence and applied the CSS rules ahead of time. And so it's a really great way just to provide um, accessibility accessible experience that's that's very usable so and there's a uh, a complementary uh, query for that or property for that too which is prefers color scheme both of those are basically supported across all modern browsers except edge before webkit now that edge is switched over to webkit uh it will support it, but if you're in Edge 18 or okay. previous, it does not support either of those. But um, let's see. Last thing to hit on, I want to talk just real quick about a few tools uh, so that if you want to get into developing accessible CSS, what can you do that will help some of this? Um, first and foremost, I cannot recommend uh, Firefox's accessibility uh, tools enough. If you go into their web inspector, they have a tab for accessibility. Um, we'll have a link to the docs on that. There was a, a question one of our listeners, uh, uh, John Westerdale, was asking about color schemes and uh, specifically about color blindness. And one of the features in Firefox's accessibility checker is that you can simulate color blindness on mm-hmm. your page. Uh, so you go in and you tell it what kind, because uh, if you're not familiar with color blindness, it's not just you can't see red green. There are many different types and and the way it uh, affects color on a page. And you can go through and pick those, and it will filter your page color for you so that you can see how your page looks. Does it have high enough contrast? Does a button vanish because of the foreground background color? That's hands down one of my favorite tools. Yeah, and it's so important too, as I actually, uh, one of my topics I have, I talk about is color theory and color on the web and accessibility. And part of my research was I actually took like the top 100, you know, portion top 100, the top 500 uh, you know, companies. And I actually did some analysis on some of them and say like, 
are these sites, you know, available for colorblindness? I think Exxon, I remember Exxon, I use Exxon as, as my whipping boy, if you will. Sorry. Sorry, Exxon. Uh, but, uh, and they're just not really prepared for, uh, for colorblindness. So it was, it was like every type of colorblindness scenario that you go through it just was not, it was not working out. So yeah. And I think colorblindness is a, a tough one for designers because you could end up working at a company whose colors their color scheme, their branding just isn't very colorblind right. friendly. And you probably aren't going to be empowered to be like, hey, we got to change all these colors now. The, these colors you've used for 100 years. Right. Toss and then them. also, like, I want, like, it kind of is a great way to dovetail back into color ratios. Uh, because one of the reasons why we they use relative luminance or luminance in general is because they could not figure out a way to. Uh, what's, it's really hard to figure out what kind of colors work great for uh, all the different types of people, all the different types of colorblindness. And so one of the things that they make sure they use these ratios was because they felt like that was enough of um, uh, just by going through color ratios and luminous that they could provide enough of a contrast depending, no matter what the color com combinations are. So, and part of my article for 24 accessibility actually they like links to some research that says like, well, it was a great start, but the color ratio is kind of flawed and they're actually working on it. Uh, we, okay, people are actually working on a new formula for it, but uh, um, but overall, so that's going to work on But that's why you also another reason why to make sure your color ratios are, you know, 4.5 and, and higher for your text. Make sure it's readable. And you, you bury the lead on mm -hmm. that comment when you point out they're working on a better mm -hmm. ratio. We're we're always working on better everything, <laughs> yeah. quite frankly. You know, the, a lot of the tools we use now for all of this simply didn't exist five or right. ten years ago. So all of this is an exercise, you know, CSS in particular. These things like uh, prefers reduced motion, prefers re uh, color scheme. Those are new things that weren't supported even a few versions ago in most browsers. This This stuff is constantly evolving, and you just kind of mm -hmm. have to keep on your toes and always be looking for ways yeah. to improve because you never know when that next good feature is going to pop up. Yeah. It's, it's such an amazing, like, like when we started out, it was such a glacial pace in which, you know, tools came out and browser features came out. And now it's just so amazing how fast things happen. I mean, a few other things that Firefox does, you can have it scan for issues with contrast and keyboard navigation. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll, if you right click on anything on a page, one of the options that pops up is just inspect accessibility properties. Mm. If you hit that, it'll bring up the, I call it the accessibility DOM. I think they call it the accessibility tree. Right. Um, but it, it's basically the way it's parsed from an accessibility standpoint, because the way things get parsed in the way a DOM tree is rendered for accessibility purposes is a little different from the way a browser renders it. And it also looks very different, but you can see all of those properties there. If you hover those elements on the page, it'll give you some quick hitters. Like it'll show you the uh, the interpreted role for that element. It'll give you a contrast ratio uh, if it's applicable. And if it knows, it will also show you if you're passing certain WCAG compliance levels. So if you click on a piece of black text on a white background, it'll tell you this is a header with a contrast ratio of you know, uh, uh, 10 to one or whatever the absolute value is there. And it's triple A compliant, um, super useful and very quick. Cause it's all just hover and it shows up. 
and it will show you that full accessibility tree. The accessibility tree is incredibly technical. Don't start with it. <laughs> but as you get into development and as you get better at these things and you pay more attention and you care about how is this piece of text rendered to a screen reader, mm -hmm. that accessibility tree can give you a lot of very useful information from a technical standpoint about how it's being interpreted. And that's super useful, but also advanced technique tech uh, world that we won't go into. Um, Chrome also has some, I think, that you use, right, Chris? I absolutely love um, accessibility insights for uh, for the web and it's the Chrome extension, which, which of course is right for Chrome. But um, and it's I use that for audits because there's uh, if you just there's a quick scan for automated testing that's built in. I think it's actually built off the X engine. So you, I, think, I think it's, I think it's, I said that right. But they also wrapped around it as a walkthrough for accessibility. So if you want to do a full audit of your web page, it'll, it'll, you can walk through the whole entire thing with steps. And I use it. It's my day to day tool for testing. Um, and I, I love it. I, because uh, it's all laid out there. And so, um, sometimes I have to go through the accessibility tree when something really gives me a fit. Uh, trying to figure out what's going on, but uh, for my day to day stuff, um, accessibility insights for web really helps helps me out there. So I I've used the the Axe plugin for Chrome. Um, I've used the Site Improve mm -hmm. uh, plugin. Um, Andy is one we've brought up many times that the Social Security Administration came up with. Um, but of course, yeah, like the only thing I'm just really surprised that Chrome has not caught up better. I guess that Firefox is baked in on a lot of this in mm -hmm. a way that's really nice and useful and Chrome is still just letting third parties deal with it. But um also I would throw in there um Paul Adams, uh his accessibility consultant. Um uh he has a series of bookmarklets, if you remember what those are. And so if you want to do some simple testing, I use them for making sure tables are coded correctly, uh headings, landmarks, you know, page titles, make sure tab indexes on there. So if you want to just quickly test, make sure for, for things that are out there. So that's pretty good. So those are nice tools to have. And then also, um, Chris Pedricks, I hope I said his name right, has a web developer extension. And so that is just great if you want to just turn off JavaScript, if you want to turn off CSS really quickly. Um, I'm sure there's a plenty of ways to do it in Chrome DevTools. But, um, but also it's a great way to, when we talked about earlier about headings um, and making sure your page is structured correctly, so you actually see the document order based off headings uh, in, in that tool too. And so um, it's a really great robust tool, even if you're just doing development work, period. But, uh, but if you also yeah. for accessibility, it's great. I'll uh, throw links to Paul and Chris's stuff in our show notes. Uh, go check that out at drunkenux.com. And we will be back in just about one minute. Uh, look at those while we hear a word from our sponsor. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. 
One map serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at newcloud.com slash drunkenux. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Chris, man, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us. It's great, A, talking to you. I haven't got to talk to you in a long time outside of Twitter, so it's it's good hearing your voice again. I appreciate it. Um, But also, uh, go check out uh, uh, Chris's uh, company, Knowability, because they do fantastic work in accessibility. But for the next couple minutes, uh, the microphone is yours. Tell everybody where they can find you, where they can meet up with you. Anything you got going on, uh, what your favorite pot roast recipe is, whatever you feel like. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I work for uh, a nonprofit, uh, not Nobility, and we're at nobility.org, which is K-N-O-W-B-I-L-T-Y.org. And um, so we do, we do uh, it's a nonprofit, so we do outreach and education programs. We, we have a, our hands-on practical accessibility training conference every May in Austin called Access U. We also... Um, do uh, technical audits for people. So if you want, if you want to, which is what I do. Uh, so if you, if you want a website that wants to be reviewed, you can do it there. And also we have, uh, it's called Access Works, and it's, um, which is a usability testing for, with people with disabilities. If they want to actually see how, how well your site holds up uh, for accessibility, there's that. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Telejects, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. Uh, my website is Christopher.org. I'm also producing a, uh, uh, we just mentioned Paul Adams, but he's actually doing a webinar that we're hosting on January 23rd for iOS and Android native app testing. And so, so if you have an app and you want to figure out how to do audit, audit for that, uh, it's a half day workshop on online webinar. So you can just check that out there too. So I'll give you the link to put in the show notes if everyone wants to. That's at nobility.org to find out more about it. Awesome. Everybody, if you want to find us, as always, Twitter or Facebook uh, at slash Drunken UX. Instagram at slash Drunken UX podcast. Uh, join us on Slack at drunkenux.com slash Slack. And outside of that, you know what, folks? I'm not going to even try to lead you on. All I care about is you start 2020 by keeping your personas close and your users closer. Bye-bye. <laughs>